Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to The Lanyard. My name is Ben Hanton. Each week I like to talk to somebody making their community more interesting or people who've created cool businesses. We're going to do that again today with Jolene Letcher. She started a business called Do-Gooders. She started Mud Mile Communications. She has a law named after her, Jolene's Law. And she's been very involved in the conversation in the South Dakota area. She also ran for the Sioux Falls mayor. She didn't quite make it, but she made the runoff election. We're going to hear all about that today. Here she is. Well, Jolene Letcher, thanks for coming down to Yankton. What brings you to the big city? Well, Ben's Brewing, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) And I heard maybe a a buffet. And a buffet. We are huge Jodine's fans. Yeah, um, it's a South family. Dakota tradition. It is. I always feel like when I go in, I should be wearing something with like an elastic waist. <laughs> <laughs> but I grew up on the other side of the river. So big Jodine's fans. I always grew up with a, I think, healthy fear of the Meridian Bridge uh-huh. that you were just going to fall through. My, so the Meridian Bridge, if you haven't been to Yankton, it's a, it's a double-decker bridge. One part of traffic goes north, one part goes south. It has since been decommissioned. It's a pedestrian bridge. It's really awesome. It's probably our most iconic thing in town. But yeah, years ago, like I remember my dad would want to pull over and uh, let somebody else drive across. (laughs) (laughs) And you were like eight years old going like, sure. (laughs) Yeah, right. I'll take the wheel, dad. But yeah, no, we love, uh, we love Jodine. So I grew up in Nebraska, but my husband, he was a a Sioux Falls city boy, right? Yeah. I still remember there was one night I was like, we got to go to Jodine's because we were on this buffet and we used to call it the advent adventure club super adventure club so we'd essentially like flip a coin and be like right left wherever however we ended up and we knew we wanted a buffet so anyway we routed ourselves one night over to jodine's and he saw all the glory that is the jodine's buffet well you know you're at a good buffet if you go into the men's bathroom and there's a sharps container like attached to the wall (laughs) because everybody's had insulin right (laughs) we're ready for the spike (laughs) so you're telling me that jodine's is not the only buffet that you guys hit you you're an you're aficionados yeah we you know especially pre-child yeah right. um you know i mean we we live the wild sing you know wild couple life single yeah. life pre-kid life my um, wife and i used to drink you hit buffets we hit buffets <laughs> yeah, no, that's, we did some super buffet years ago in vegas where you had 24 hours and you had eight buffets but we bought like the super pass with only 18 hours yeah so we had 18 hours and the goal was to hit eight buffets we only hit five i hit five he only hit four so i I mean is it it doesn't really matter if it's is it a salad bar that you're looking for is it king crab legs what what features Uh, on a buffet makes it a good buffet you know here's the thing about it like I'm a dessert person yeah so so i love that part of it but i love the psychology of the buffet like who goes for what and like you know I think it's like almost a microcosm. If the world were to end, how do humans respond to stress? And the stress is when you think like the last ham is being cut at the buffet. It's a scarcity. It is. Or if you're at like Pizza Ranch and the new cheesy bread comes out, like who goes for the middle cheesy bread and the fresh plate? Like I think it's just an insight into 
yeah. the human mind. When I do Pizza Ranch too, I you know I do take multiple trips up there, but every trip I also grab one of those uh, dessert pizzas. Oh right, every trip up, every trip. Well, but you've got a fuel. Yeah. For the next trip up, <laughs> you need that little bit of carb. Yeah, and then you need to take a nap like immediately <laughs> after. But so, yeah, no, we love Yankton and, and been to riverboat days and all that fun stuff. So you said you're from the other side of the river. As, as you probably know, I'm about three blocks away from the Missouri River right now. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Wayne, Nebraska. So I was a farm kid um, and we still have a family farm, um, actually on, on both sides of my family. Um, so one that's over kind of by Emerson. Emerson Allen area. And then the other one is about eight and a half miles outside of Wayne. So grew up a farm kid, um, graduated from, from Wayne high school, uh, went to many, a Wayne chicken show. Yeah. What happens at the Wayne chicken show? Is it just another excuse to have some beers? Well, always good. Yeah. And chickens. Um, it started years ago. They wanted to do an art festival of some kind, but it needed a theme. So they went with chickens and it took off. Last I knew they had like ten or 12,000 people come to town Wow. for it. Um, I think a lot of the people that are from town now, it's gotten so big that they kind of take the weekend off. Oh, yeah. They could Airbnb their right, house. Yeah. Oh, yeah. See, that never existed. Kind of like Sturgis, like, right? Yeah. You know? Come on in. See the chickens. <laughs> but its claim to fame was always the National Chicken Cluck Off, where and they had people that would fly in from Arkansas and all over the country and all over the world to compete in the Chicken Cluck Off. And the really big deal about it was that um, the national champion every so often would get invited to go be on the late show or the late night, you know, with Johnny Carson. Yeah. Because Johnny was oh, he's a from Norfolk, Norfolk guy. boy. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So they would invite him to be on. But yeah, I never did the cluck off. Um, I did win the egg decorating contest once. It was the year the theme was eggs in space. So it was Neil Eggstrong. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's pretty cheeky. <laughs> it is like, yeah. And uh won a few chicken song contests. Like you take songs and you turn them into like chicken themes. Yeah. I can't sing. I let me let me put it more clearly. I cannot sing and I should not sing. But you have a confidence in front of a microphone. Uh, yeah, I have, do. Have you so, tried it? Not since I was like twelve. <laughs> I would think somebody who likes buffets should like karaoke. They, yeah, I know. I'm I just don't want to put people through it. It's <laughs> horrible. Like right now my little girl is not quite two and she thinks I'm a great singer, but I have a feeling like in about eight to nine weeks that reality's yeah, gonna hit. Absolutely. <laughs> no, I have my, my three year old too, uh, she says, Dad, your voice is beautiful. And are you like, Oh <laughs> like, record it. Never grow up. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the the complexity of the songs I'm, I'm working on are mostly like daddy shark do 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 oh we're avoiding the baby shark song it's so awful oh. it's so nice i mean it's, good yeah. for them they're gonna yeah. get a netflix show out of this they're gonna be like. billionaires yeah. with baby shark right. do 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 yeah yeah so we we're <laughs> kind of on the simple line too right now abc's one two threes and we make up a few crazy ones we're gonna get into your full biography here shortly, but I did want to take a minute to talk about your recent news. Um, we're recording this about a week, week and a half before it's going to air, but uh, you just became a presidential... Leadership what? scholar. Okay. Presidential leadership scholar. Tell us what that means. So what that means is that there are 60 um, people from across the country that are selected and deemed to be change makers. And in collaboration with the George 
H.W. Bush Library, um, the George W. Bush Library, the LBJ Foundation, and then the Clinton Foundation. They have all come together to select those folks. And we will spend the next six months um, hearing from and learning from former presidents, um, their cabinet officials, um, leadership teams that they've had, some of the top academics that have come in. And then we will also be traveling across the country to their different presidential libraries as well for an opportunity to, one, bring together people who are from very diverse points of view, diverse parts of the country, um, in a, a bipartisan effort to really, I think it's an incredible opportunity to heal what is hurting this nation right now in creating conversation, but also growing leaders. What, so I need to dive in more on that. So yes. what, what is hurting this country and um, how you're going to heal that by getting in a room together? Tell me more. So I think, you know, universally, regardless of what letter comes behind your name, there is this this sense of a divide. And unfortunately, I think a growing divide that we cannot have conversations, yeah. that you are either here or here, that we are um, our, our our beliefs are, you know, our goodness as humans is purely determined by how someone else sees one letter that you put behind your name when you go to vote on election day. And the reality is that we have such a shared cause. Um, and so really the goal is that we're, we're bringing in so many different perspectives and points of view and that we can create connections and grow as leaders and go back into our communities and that what we're we're learning from these incredible examples of presidential leadership um, how do they make their decisions what came into that you know how do you struggle with all of the consequences of an education law or deciding, you know, what our involvement should be internationally in a situation. That's what presidents deal with and what leadership plays into that and the people and the voices. So the hope being that, um, you know, we come together, we learn from each other, we learn from those lessons in the past. And um, then we go out into our communities and we take those connections too to bring them back home and, and connect, but also keep those conversations going. So when you come back home with the knowledge and, and new shared experiences that you, you, I guess, that you found, what does that look like? How do you bring that message home to South Dakota? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that's been great for me is we just wrapped up about a week ago. We had a week in D.C. And so that was our first um, session all out together. And Were the presidents there? They were not. Okay. Um, but we had some great folks coming in and chatting with us. So we had this incredible opportunity to get together and, and meet and, and know, you know, some of our own backstories. But for me, what was great was, you know, telling the story of South Dakota and that this isn't flyover country. Right. This is the heartland. Yeah. This is, um, I think, unfortunately, at times, the forgotten America where... I believe some of the best of this country lies, you know, in our horizons and our fields and our farms. And, and, you know, this is a part of the world that's about hard work and effort. And, you know, I'm a farm kid. I'm a farm kid that went on to, um, you know, grow some great businesses and just want to be better. And so for me to tell that story and remind folks that there's a lot out here. Yeah. And that we have, you know, biotech and, and all of these great industries that I think we get forgotten by the coasts. 
that we have there. So I can share that story um, with them. But then it's also taking what we're working on individually and seeing, oh, I know somebody that can help you with this. Right. Or I know somebody um, that can do this. And so, you know, we're sharing what we're all working on, on leadership projects and missions, and how can we help further that work too. Oh, that's excellent. And and so what does this look like in terms of a time commitment? Uh, is this a one-year deal, two-year? How does it look? Six months. Six months. So it's a six-month program. So we were just in Washington, D.C., and here in a couple weeks then I will um, have some time in College Station, Texas, and then we are in Little Rock, Arkansas, um, and then we are to Dallas and uh, Austin and then back to Dallas. Oh, well, that's fantastic, and congratulations. Thank and I'm you. glad you're out there telling that South Dakota story and that Midwest story, uh, because I think it's important too. I mean, you really help describe why we live here, which is a choice, right? Mm-hmm. I think sometimes people think we're we were born here and left here, but we, yeah, we decided to stay. We like it. And you know, for me, and we'll get into my backstory. I left and came back. Yeah, like this is where my heart was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I made that that decision. And you know, when you when you meet folks that are not from here, especially this time of year, <laughs> right? it kind of becomes, well, why do you live somewhere where it gets 60 below wind chill? And, um, you know, it's, there's nowhere else I'd rather raise my daughter. Mm-hmm. And I think for so many of us at the end of the day, it comes down to family and quality of life. And yeah, it's 60 below outside. Um, but there's nowhere else I would rather have her instilled with the values that we, we grow up with here. Yeah. And I think it's also this. So the states that we choose is part of it and the cities are part of it, too. You know, you have, I think, fallen in love with a city and I, and I have fallen in love with a city here, too, that, you know, I, I was sitting here at happy hour. Of course, I run a bar, so I, I'm here at a lot of them. <laughs> and uh, yesterday there was a discussion about, you know, which city in South Dakota would you most want to live in? And, uh, you know, I heard a few people talking about Brookings and a few people mentioning, but the vast majority of the people who live here were saying this, this This place, this is where I want to be. And I think that, you know, the more we can instill a little bit of pride in our own communities Mm -hmm. to, uh, make, make people feel like they're making the right decision. I think that's contagious. And I think that's, what's sometimes missing, um, from the sentiment, from the feeling, from the conversation is be proud. Yeah, exactly. Be proud that you're from South Dakota. Um, and, and when people ask where you're from, I'm from South Dakota and people go, oh, Mount Rushmore. Yeah, but. Right. There's so and much also. More. Yeah. Or, I'll, you know, just <laughs> there, there is so much more. I, you know, yeah, you've seen that. But do you know? You know, do you know what we are doing? Um, I, I love the story of like the work Sanford's doing with um, SAB Pharmaceutical pharmaceuticals, uh, which used to be hematech, like, but do you know what we're doing? And, um, you know, potentially in, in that case, changing the course of, of human history in medicine. Yeah, that's exciting. And I, I'm glad that you're telling that story again. Tell me again how you got out of, or tell me how you left Wayne yep. and decided to get into, I think the first step was into broadcast journalism, but college had to come first. It did. Well, college kind of came in between the two. So, um, I think the irony of our discussion is uh, grew up in Wayne and I loved it, but turned 18 and was like, you know what? I'm moving away and I'm never coming back. I'm going to the big city and that's where I'm going to be. What big city? I went to Chicago. So I went to Northwestern University, which is technically uh, first suburb north of the city in Evanston and um, had an amazing, amazing opportunity, incredible education, all of those things. But 
there was a part of me that didn't, I think that knew it was this transient moment in life. Um, and so it was very, and still is very expensive to live in the city or even right outside of the city. So I would come home in the summers and I would, uh, live at home. And initially it started that I was going to get an internship because I was a broadcast journalism major. Voted top broadcast journalism student. Yes. Yeah. At Northwestern University, the Medill School of Journalism. And I thought, well, I'll come back in the summers and I'll do this internship and I'll save money and all that. So I was at KTIV, which is based out of Sioux City, the NBC affiliate. And I'm on day two or so of this internship and I'm walking in Someone comes running up to me, well, somebody just quit, which at the time I thought was like <laughs> highly unusual <laughs> in broadcast news. There's high turnover. It's a, it's a high stress job. And they said, here's the thing. You got to take this camera and you push this and this and this and do that. And um, yeah, go out. And I'm 19. But you were, you were like, absolutely. I, and I did. I, I was just like, in my mind, I'm like, this is how it all starts. And so I um, I went out and was completely overwhelmed. And I still remember coming back. <laughs> and the video I shot was completely awful. Um, they used to have a thing on cameras. And it still exists. But white balance. You have to tell a camera what's sure. white. Yeah. Well, I, I got that part. Like, I got the part that I was supposed to push that button. But I missed the part where you were supposed to put it on. Like a gray wall. On a, or a white wall. I put it on, and I don't know if they still have them, but Sioux City, um, their ambassadors for the chamber used to wear these green suit jackets. <laughs> so I came back thinking, I, you know, I'm 19, I've made it, and I had this video, and you put it in the deck because it was obviously tape at the time, and the people are all green, like their faces are green and everything, and so, and you didn't have Photoshop yeah, it's or not Premiere like today when you had so much flexibility no. and raw to switch that around. And I just thought, hmm. All right. Well, I had my one opportunity and now I've shot it all. <laughs> but no, they fixed it. They still ran it. Um, and then so then I went on to to report at uh, at KTIV. I do that during the summers and even went back. I got to cover the uh, 2000 election there. So I flew back and did that and um, and then graduated and knew I wanted to come back. And in part, my grandparents were kind of in the last part of their life. We knew that was coming. So I wanted to to do that and, yeah. and be with them. Well, and I think my first, the first time I saw you on TV was in, was with Kello in Sioux Falls. And if I remember right, um, did you wear a lot of hats? <laughs> I think that was kind yeah. of like a different look for, for what I was expect to, <laughs> what I was used to seeing on the news. <laughs> I did. And, you know, I, I think it was more than anything like a practicality thing. And it's funny. People still remember the hats. Like, <laughs> and I still ha like I found a box of them the other day. And I think it was just a practicality thing because I hated, I still do, am not good about doing my hair. And if you're out in the elements, you know, you just yeah, throw sure. the hat on. And right. If you want to do a live out on the street. Right. You just cover them up. Yeah, there were a lot of hats. But you were really into, I believe, the, the crime beat. I did do. Yeah. Um, so I was general assignment when I started and then I uh, transitioned over into, uh, at the time, was called Courts and Cops. Yeah catchy little name. <laughs> so that was, so I had heard of Jolene Letcher because, you know, you knew everybody that was on the news. And then the next time I saw you, um, I was asked to be on a cover with some, at, for <gasps> 605 magazine. Yes. And there was, uh, it was basically like, uh, I don't know, the 
four people you should know in mm-hmm. whatever year that was. And um, so I showed up at this laundromat where they were doing this photo shoot, and in comes Jolene Letcher. Um, now, in all fairness, like I am not. I'm four foot eleven and a half. I was just gonna say, uh, I was I was a little surprised at how tall you are. <laughs> Thank you. I, it is shocking how tall I am. And uh, you also had a pug in tow that yeah. was very unruly and <sighs> might have barked the whole time through the photo shoot. And um, so at the time we had two pugs. <laughs> One was Jerry. Oh yeah, they were both there. They were both yeah, there. Yeah. One ended up getting escorted out because yes. it. Did not behave well. Yeah. Um, we had two pugs, one that was very old and one that was very young. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's, yeah, me and the pugs. Oh. <laughs> so you, you show, I was actually kind of expecting a couple to couple be of them around show here today. Up. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, we did this photo shoot and that's when I started to understand what you were doing post journalism or post Kello and uh, maybe describe some of those businesses that you decided to start. Yeah. So um, the first business that, that we started was back in 2007, 2007, 2008, which was just a really great time to like wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to start a business that's completely dependent upon disposable income. That's what most people do in a recession. Yes. Uh, so my husband, <laughs> Nate Verdine, and I had decided that we needed a way to help pay for my MBA. Um, and we weren't afraid of a little hard work and to get dirty and all of that. So the first business we started was Do-Gooders, D-O-O-G-O-O-D-E-R-S. So it started as a dog waste pickup company. Like yep. Very simple concept. Um, By and- the way, I got to say right off the bat, you saying dog waste, that is not the way that I, I'm used to you talking about that because you had so many like poop puns. I know. I'm trying to class it up here. Like I've been yanked <laughs> in. I, need to, <laughs> I can't be uncouth. Okay. Um, yeah. We, we say a lot of crap and expl- I guess you're a podcast. You were like you chief could- excrement officer. Oh, yeah. I was, um, yeah, I was CEO, chief yeah. ex- ex- excrement officer. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, every like, every pun you can imagine we've <laughs> we've done or heard or used and we one of the things i'm so proud of is that from the night well morning it was like 3 a.m and we decided this is what we're going to do and this is what we're going to call it and we are going to give back it was really important to both of us that we build a company that gave back and built the community um, so that it could build the business so how, what does that look like? So you're, you're, you're hiring people to help you clean up mm-hmm. dog poo and you're giving back to the community. How? So it was important to us that a percentage of all of our sales always go back to charity. So, so we that's always, the do good. That's the part. do good yeah. in do gooders. Yeah. And a lot of that was inspired. And I know we'll talk about it in a little bit was from what I saw at the Coca-Cola company. And how they they invested in the communities around them and in people's potential because, one, it's the right thing to do. It's how you do good. Um, but it's also how you build a strong foundation for a good business. So, yeah, the company started very simply. And um, at first it was just the two of you. It was just the two of us. And that meant that you were – how did you get your message out? You, you said – First of all, you must have noticed the problem. You, mm-hmm. you realize there must have been an, an excess amount of excrement. So, <laughs> <laughs> now, don't get – Sioux Falls doesn't have a, an issue, but we realized that um, people want to spend time with their families. Okay. And the last thing they want to do 
is have to pick this up. Yeah, you're kind of, I mean, kind of like me. I was like, oh, I'll wait till spring. Right, you know? like time is valuable. And then it's, oh my gosh, why did I wait till why spring? Why did I do this? And there are um, environmental reasons you undo it and health reasons and, and those sorts of things. But I think most people's primary motivating factor is like, I want to be able to go out into my backyard. Right. And not step in anything and enjoy my kids and not be embarrassed like someone comes over. So, so yeah, so it started very simply, just the two of us. We um, somehow scrounged together $300 to get an ad uh, in uh, Sioux Falls Women's Magazine. And that was our first kind of foray out into the world. Did the ad work? It did. So, actually, we still have um, our number two customer number one number two um and we actually used to number them your number one your number, number one two yeah business. number two yeah exactly so number two used to be like the most prestigious <laughs> spot um so someone that saw the spot or saw the ad didn't know it was us but knew us had called and then gotten my husband was talking to him and realized i know you all so still a customer to this day oh that's cool so so the company still exists it still exists but it's really shifted its focus so there still is that yeah. residential side but um really what we do now is more in the world of egg genetics biotech um so when you you know, when you move into an apartment, that's a place you see a lot of problems. So we use... Because you might have 30 dogs. 30, 50. I mean, we have properties with well over 100 dogs. Oh, wow. And so... And there are rules. And there are rules. People do not follow the rules right. often. So this really uses something very, very simple, and that's DNA. I, I say, it's simple. I'm yeah. not a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> it's super simple. Um, but essentially uses DNA. So we take... Um, uh, DNA cheek swab, very painless from a dog. And then when properties find uh, a sample, we match it up and they can then choose to find someone as they, they want. So what you're saying, I believe then, is that in order to move into that apartment complex and have a dog, you need to submit a DNA sample up front. Exactly. And then if we find uh, samples that aren't cleaned up and it matches your dog, then there's uh, repercussions. Exactly. Yeah. And properties kind of find how they want. And what's really cool about it is that's the very rudimentary yeah. use of it. But um, now there's another layer that we're adding on to where we, we have your dog's D DNA profile. You have your dog's DNA profile. So we can start to tell you, you know, given what we know about your dog's genetics, this is what their ideal weight should be. Given what we know, and, and people usually go to breed, like, oh, you can tell me the breed. Yep. So so you can do the breed part of it, but then also, um, given what we know about your dog's genetics, they are at a higher likelihood of having this disease or that disease. So you have a 23andMe for dogs. Canines. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So is that, do you have competitors in that space? Not, I mean, they're, I would say no. Like predominantly, I mean, yes, people exist, but um, by far and away, like we are the industry leader. So when you talk about labs and testing, there is what's called ISO certification. And so um, our lab, which is based out in Knoxville, Tennessee, is the only lab of its kind that does this with an ISO certification. So no one else in the world. And it's such a rigorous process. I mean, it, it takes a lab, um, you know, several years and all kinds of evaluations and testing and to receive that. So there is no one else that can do that. Well, that seems like you are ripe for an acquisition then. I mean, somebody <laughs> might look at your company at some point and say, hey! this should be part of our portfolio. Yeah. You know what? It's or are you going to be the, the company acquiring? Um, you know, I think it's been fun to grow things and we'll see, you know, we'll see where it goes. Yeah. You never say no to the opportunity.
Well, that I think that's really neat. So how many people are, I guess, on your staff or that, that still help clean up yards? Is that still a, that's still a, still a thing? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And so for that, we really just service the Sioux Falls area. Um, and so we can go seasonally anywhere from six to 12. Okay. People. Yep. But you know, you're just covering the Sioux Falls yeah. area. Um, yeah. I and- used to see like I think it was almost maybe your personal social media or maybe it was do gooders, but you'd be uh, announcing the routes. Oh for, yeah, for yeah. <laughs> cleanups What's on coming? Facebook, and I always felt like I was very involved in the poop cleanup <laughs> in like, Sioux I Falls. Know what it looks like in Sioux Falls? Got my yeah. finger on the pulse. Pulse or the yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So um, that's one of the businesses. Tell me some of the other businesses that you've been involved in. Yeah. Um, so really what, what takes up a lot of, of my time and focus and energy then right now is as CEO of Mud Mile Communications. And so Mud Mile is a, a full service agency. The bulk of our work um, really focuses in the video and content world. And so we get to work with really incredible clients and we're doing a bunch of traveling here um, in the next few months. But we work with... Um, Coca-Cola. We um, work with Augustana University. Um, We get to tell these incredible stories. We work with a company called Silver Star Car Wash, which is this, like, I personally, as a mom, I love them um, because they get the car clean. But it's this great company that's just growing incredibly in Sioux Falls and has a unique subscription model base that I I think is fascinating given our subscription culture. Yeah, right. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we... Subscription car washes. Subscription car washes, like essentially. So yeah, you pay a... Prepaid. Prepaid. You play... And it starts at fif- less than $15 a month, and you can go through as many times as you want. Oh, wow. So it's a, it's a great... And it's a fun story to tell. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we get to tell these really great stories. Then this past fall, we shot off another division, and it's called Adrenaline Sports Marketing. And there we focus on um, in-game, in-arena, sports video animation and content, and then also translating that into social media and focusing on um, mostly collegiate it, but some professional teams as well and telling that story. So we work with NDSU and the Bison. Uh, and I got to say it right. Yeah, I was just curious about how you pronounce that. Bison, yeah. I probably just struck it out a little too long, but yeah. <laughs> yeah the, it's not an S. It's not a how can you how can you support NDSU and you know this is such an SDSU USD I know area. I know <clears throat> um, funny that's how. I was gonna say I'll tell you, I was gonna, <laughs> the, their colors are green yes um, and I mean national champions year after year after year after, yeah. you know undeniable I'm just saying and the, like, the recruitment my gosh oh and it's just like it's a great culture yeah. Um, I do. Like, well, I love that city too, by the way. I mean, there's a, Fargo there's a feeling so around Fargo that, you know, I've talked about this before, but you know, it used to be kind of a town that was regarded as kind of like a butt of a joke mm-hmm. from the Cohen brothers. And, you know, if you thought about Fargo, you thought about something that was flat wood chipper. minus 40 degrees and a wood chipper. And, you know, when I started hanging out there, everybody in town talked about how much they love Fargo. And I thought that was a example to bring back. It's like, how come they can love their town and we can't, yes. you know? Yes, I I love the the pride. Yeah. I, you know, the people are from Fargo or they moved to Fargo and they love it. And they are going to tell you they love it. I love the energy, the entrepreneurial energy that's there. Yeah. Um and I love the Spitfire. Since we will go back to food 
phenomenal. <laughs> oh, <that's>, <laughs> <laughs> well, they also, you know, they've had uh, ESPN College Game Day a few times, and it's just mm-hmm. madness up there. And they are a community that, I mean, they will travel. Yeah. They will travel for their teams, and you know they come and they just it is a it's a buy in. Yes, um, and I, it's just such a fun city. And when you say to people like, you know, we're fun cities already, and I'm like, Fargo is a great great town. And I think a lot of that springboards off of how proud people are to be from there. Um, or even people that do end up leaving. Um, I, you know, I know a, an incredible young man who's doing like great work in. Um, in sort of the Silicon Valley area, but he's originally from Fargo. And man, he will tell you, Austin will always be like, I'm from Fargo. Yeah, yeah this is where I live, but I'm from Fargo. Yeah, a lot of their Twitter handles are are from Fargo, too, mm-hmm. like my buddy Greg from Fargo, Jake from Fargo, you know. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and talk more with Jolene Letcher. The presenting sponsor of The Lanyard is Ben's Brewing Company. We are a brewery, taproom, and speakeasy located in Yankton, South Dakota. Our beers are on tap in several South Dakota cities. Visit us online at bensbrewing.com. Good people drink Ben's beer. We're back with Jolene Letcher. We've been talking about Wayne, Nebraska, how she got into journalism, how she became a president's scholar, is it? Presidential leadership scholar. Thank you. I know it's a lot of PLS is what they call it. So where we left off is we were talking about Mud Mile, which is your uh, agency, but you primarily focus on video production and you were naming some of the clients. I'm curious about the name because Mud Mile to me, to me would suggest like, Tough Mudder races or something like that. Which I've done. Okay. Yeah, I've done. Is that where the name came from? It doesn't. Um, Or we've had people ask if it's like, you know, dirt biking or off-roading or, um, you know, like four-wheeling, which I also, we have a quad called Jean Quad. (laughs) Uh, But none of that is where any of it came from. I know I've... Since I'm from around here, like I grew up on a three wheeler, and I say completely by the grace of God, I still have ten fingers, ten toes in my head. Yeah, because no one should have that on a three wheeler <laughs> when they're like nine. Um, but uh, it comes from the mud mile, so the um, you know essentially unmaintained road yeah. that ran um, just north of my family's farm, and we say that that the journey on that, the path on that, is not always easy. But it is the most beautiful path to the place that you're supposed to be. Right. And the destination is... Destination is the journey. Yeah. You know, it it did make me think, though, when you said that you have ran a tough mutter. Yes. So we'll get into politics a little later, but you were in a runoff uh, in the Sioux Falls mayoral election with Paul Tenhaken, and he's also an athlete. Like, maybe that's how you could have settled it. (laughs) (laughs) Paul is a much more uh, um, competitive and, like, he he trains so much. And, like, he is way more honed in than, I like, my goal is to survive. So you're suggesting that if that would have been the means for the runoff, he still would have won. So, yeah. Time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would have been, yeah, yeah. If we, if we were tough muttering it or spartaning, I can't remember. I think he does Spartan races. Right, too, which is like, like, what, those 20-hour races? Yeah, those are like endurance. <laughs> and, and he's so much taller than I am that, uh, yeah, I would have been all his. <laughs> <laughs> I would have tried, but. Tell me about self 
self self-spiration. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. So self-spiration um, was something that started probably back into the idea was around 2010, 2011. Um, and I'm, I'm very open about the fact that um, I am a survivor of child sexual abuse. And for me, that healing journey was not easy. It isn't for anybody. Yeah. It's, it's um, gut wrenching, right? Um, it's soul shredding. And so um, for me in that process of dealing and healing and confronting what had happened, I wanted to do something to ease the journey for those um, that were going through it. So we created Self-Spiration Day Camps and we did, um, I think, six or so, the girls camps and boys camps and partnered with the Compass Center, which is out of Sioux Falls and works with victims of sexual and domestic violence. And we brought in volunteers and those volunteers um, were primary or secondary victims of sexual assault or sexual abuse. And when we say secondary victims, um, we may be referring to a brother or sister of a survivor, the spouse of a survivor, where they still feel those consequences yeah. too. And we made them very small. So they were anywhere from, from five to eight kids. And the day was about one, reminding them that despite what happened in their past, there is still something so beautiful and, and priceless in who they are. And they have a right to enjoy life reclaim their life and reclaim their their life and their power and their voice and connect with people that understand their pain um and then also throughout those activities we weaved in just trying to plant the seeds of ways that you can also express your pain so we did um, painting and we did art we did um like laser tag we did go-karts we did you know things that you could go when I am sad, when I am down, when I need to heal, when I need to process, I remember how I felt then and maybe I'll, I'll do that. Uh, we went out to the Humane Society and they just held cats and walked dogs. So we did that. Um, and then at the end of the day, we would bring the parents in and they would get their own time together. And for so many of the parents, it was the first time that they had sat um, across from or next to or been in what they realized was the same room as another parent going through the same thing. And they could go, my child wakes up with night terrors. I don't know what to do. I think every time she yells at me, she hates me. They, they were able to have that really raw conversation and, and help heal as well. Um, so we did that for a couple years and um, then found out I was expecting and trying to like, how do I continue to affect change? in that world and protect children and families and make them stronger. And so then that's when um, my legislative work as an advocate started. But what is amazing to me about the camps is um, there is a group up in Watertown that has kind of taken that concept and molded it to what works for them and is, uh, is doing a camp program up there. So the idea lives on in, in other ways and other formats. But about a month or so ago, I'm at Target, and I'm looking like a complete hot mess. And I'm like in, on one of those mom missions where it's like, I got to get in. I got to get this. I got to get out. Someone's in the car. You know, like, da -da 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 -da, like <laughs> commando mom. And I'm zooming through, doing this, doing this, whip around a corner, and there's a Target employee. And as I'm looking at her, I'm like, huh, she kind of looks familiar. And she stops, and she looks at me, and she's like, Joe, do you know who I am? And I'm like, I wait. <gasps> Firecracker. So this was his name, nickname we had given one of the campers. Because she was, at the time she came to the camp, she was 12 years old. And the first year she was at the camp, um, she was 
uh, a firecracker. Like she'd zing you this and this and this and this. And, um, and so we, we just nicknamed her firecracker. And so she had told me what she was up to. And she said, um, your camp was life changing. You, you know, you changed my life and I think I'm going to go into law enforcement or, um, study psychology so that I can help victims. Um, and it was so cool. And I said, well, what, you know, well, law enforcement or whatever. And we're, we're chatting all the while in the back of my head. I'm like, you know, you got the mom timer going. And, and yet even with the mom timer, like time stopped. And I got to have this incredible conversation and was able to connect her with a member of the highway patrol for her to be able to go out and see what that experience is like. So I think she's doing that here in the next couple of weeks. Oh, that's fantastic. And I love the idea that even though you weren't able to continue on with the camps, you have uh, allowed others to, you know, keep Take them going it. in their own way. Yeah, keep that idea. Because the whole point was to help. Yep. Yeah. And and it did, you know, and selfishly it helped me. Well, exactly. Right. Um, and so... Tell me about Jolene's Law and mm -hmm. what that process was like, because it felt like, you know, as somebody who follows on social media, um, first year, it seems like it, you ran into some mm -hmm. obstacles, second year successful. Yeah, um, a little bit reverse there. I'll give you the uh, condensed okay. Cliff Notes, the, the peer version of Cliff Notes. So um, 2012, I had first publicly shared my story, um, knowing that there was some name recognition behind who I was and just really felt like... Um, God had called me to share that story and to to see what good I could do with that. Shared it, um, and a, a, a near and dear friend of mine, um, then Senator Mark Johnston, had approached me, and he was in the legislature. and And Mark's a military guy, and Mark said, "We're going to fix what happened to you." <laughs> and I explained to Mark, "Like you can't fix, yeah. you can't fix, right? But we can prevent, or we can make it better." So, um, with Mark's help, we were able to remove the statute of limitations in 2012 on. Um, you know, a lot of the categories of rape in South Dakota. So give me an idea of what those statute of limitations were like previously. Right. So previously, um, you know, very basically, you had a window of seven years from when the crime happened in which to pursue criminal charges. These cases destroy people. They destroy, um, you know, I say it's soul shattering. That's the only way I can describe it. It is a physical act that spiritually, emotionally, mentally um, kills a person, almost kills a person. Um, and, and knowing that, you know, I went through that firsthand. And so to, to put seven years on someone and say somehow in seven years you have to be able to, to go and to say this happened to you and be willing to know that you may get called to testify. You may have to be in the same, you know, constitutionally, you know, you have a right to see your accuser. You may be in the same room as them. Like you have to be at that point. You have to be healed enough. Um, that's just unrealistic. It's, you know, um, it is, in some ways I think it violates hope. Because all of a sudden that calendar turns and you, sh you don't have the right to have justice. So, so we removed that. Um, and if you look at so many of the cases we hear and see about now, too, we have DNA evidence. Um, you know, we may have video like the, the, the world has changed. And I think also the acknowledgement of what trauma does to the yeah. brain. Um, you know, for me, my survival mode was to take what had happened to me. 
shove it in this box, lock it up. And I thought I threw it to the bottom of the ocean where it'd never come back. Well, like for instance, uh, I mean, not knowing your situation, but let's just say that you were doing well in college and you were named the top journalism student, and you were going on to internships and you were going to be at a prominent role in Kello. Is that the time you'd want to come forward and tell your story? Probably not. Because you you were trying to build a career, you didn't want to be the distraction. You didn't want to um, take away some of the opportunities that were in front of you. And it took it wasn't until you had some success and mm-hmm. some comfort that you were able to do that. Yeah, and and I think also too, um, in my mind, you know, when I say in my mind, but this is a reality. When you come forward, there is backlash. Oh, absolutely. And and we know in the well, and, and not to mention that it can actually be new physical um uh threats yeah i mean it's and I, and it's not I only just emotions it can be physical too right you know and so you know we we know that in these cases to put that number on that is just you know it, it doesn't help society you know, and I, I believe like government should help society be stronger it should help people be able to do more right and and when you look at cases of of pedophiles uh, when you talk to people that are experts in the field it is not uncommon to see someone have um, upwards of or in excess of a hundred victims and so if you think about that um you know, how do you stop that? So that's, that was kind of step one. And we did that. Um, and, and I'm, I'm proud to see that the conversation in now going on seven years has evolved so much from that because, you know, we, we had to explain during that testimony, um, you know, to, to one of the legislators who said, well, you might be telling the truth, you might not, but, but what about the person you're accusing? Isn't this going to be hard on them? Like we had to explain like they did what they did, you know, and and I think we as a society have come so far. Um, then in 2014, there was this this really this grassroots that had started for a couple of years of what do we do? How can we change it? How can we do more to stop it? And so um, Senator Dub Solholt, who is from Sioux Falls, still in the legislature and um, is just an incredible, incredible legislative mind. And she and I started having this conversation about what can we do? And out of that came Jolene's Law, Jolene's Law Task Force, in which we brought together um, 15 people and not just legislators, right? It was nonprofits. It was victims advocates. um, It was law enforcement prosecutors, that whole pool. And we said, we're going to create a report for the state of South Dakota of what we can do. But we needed a little more time. And of course, with time comes a little bit more money. It was about eight. $18,000 or so that that we had spent and write about what we needed. And so when we went back to ask um, the legislature to fund it again, um, we one of the the committees we were before had killed it. And I remember being in that room and it still to this day um, is one of the most gut wrenching experiences of my life because I thought all this work, all this pain we've poured out, all of this potential to save lives. It's done. It's over. Like that's what I saw in that moment when it got deferred to the 41st day, um, which in South Dakota essentially means it's killed. And I remember walking out and being like, this isn't going to stand. We're not going to do this. And we, we started 
this movement. And, and we spoke out and spoke up and stood up and people started calling the governor and emailing and all of this. And I am so grateful to Governor Newgard. Um, and I know you had his um, his lieutenant governor. Yeah, Matt in, Michaels. Matt was in uh, not too long ago. And I am so thankful to that administration and to the leadership Governor Dugard showed because 36 hours after we were killed, he issued an executive order and said, it's coming back. And the support they've shown. So out of that, Jolene's Law Task Force created a 10-year action plan to end child abuse. And really, we've, we've stretched that umbrella to say child maltreatment because these are um, situations and crimes children face that aren't in a bucket. It's not just sexual abuse. Oftentimes, it may be, um, it may be physical. There may be other, other dynamics in there. So we've kind of stretched that out to say child maltreatment. And um, we created a 10-year plan that we're saying we're going to end this by 2026, it's a very long, it's got six pillars and, and all of that. But um, we are, I, I'm just, I'm beyond proud of what we're, we're doing. So out of that came the Center for the Prevention of Child Maltreatment. Um, we're going to give it a quick witty acronym called CPCM. And they base out of USD. And they are really kind of our hub that day to day live and breathe and put action and life behind this plan. Um, and we have taken mandatory reporting laws. And extended those and made those stronger. We've increased mandatory reporter training. 10,000 people or more than 10,000 people in the last about year and a half, two years in South Dakota have now sat down and learned what it means to be a mandatory reporter. You think about that, that is a significant part of our population. Um, we have created the first regional reporting center. Prior to this, we had children and families that when a case was brought up, um, you know, especially in like the Northwest and stuff, they were driving three, four, five hours to get to treatment and to help. Now we have cut that down and we still have pockets we're working on. We're going to keep expanding that. But families are driving an hour and a half, two hours. Yeah. So that it's they can get better. the response. It is getting better. Um, we are working on statewide education for K-12. But then also, if you are in um, the state university system, you will receive training um, and a course in what it means to um, be aware of, to respond to child maltreatment. Because we know those are those are our first eyes and ears to protecting children. Um, we have rolled out what's called ACEs, Adverse Child Experience Scores, where that is a training. We have 26 master trainers in that that are now going out to all these different communities and to your business or to your church and teaching you what it means when trauma affects someone, that these are economic impacts. Now, you know, God willing, you see the humanitarian impact. Um, but these also have financial ramifications. And so if we look at ACEs, and it's it's a CDC um, survey, and a survey is not right, the right word, questionnaire, and very, very briefly, it says 10, 10 things that if you experienced it once or multiple times as a child, it increases um, your likelihood for other things. So, you know, if you witness domestic violence, um, if you went, if you were a victim of physical violence, sexual violence, all these things. And at a certain tipping point, we see that um, there are huge health and economic ramifications. So when people have a score of five or higher, that these, ha these things happen to them in childhood, there's a five and a half times greater risk that they are going to miss more than two weeks of work. That is an economic impact. 
And we know that just given um, socioeconomics and what we know about the population of South Dakota, 20% of our children, the day they are born, are scoring at least two. Two out of 10, that they are going to experience two adverse experiences. Wow. So it's not just this isolated thing. It's no. no. And I think the thing we cannot state enough is that um, the myth that this is only certain populations Um, and the myth that this is only um, something that our tribal communities are facing. Not true. Um, our well-to-do, financially stable, you know, three Audis in the driveway in Sioux Falls family is facing this just as much as our family in Kyle, South Dakota. Those children are facing that and both deserve a right to heal. Yeah, they need equal protection. Yep. And so that's what we're working on. That's what we're fighting for. Well, I'm so proud to say at least I know you uh, for, for that work in itself. I mean, just the... I mean, that's a person who's going to put their own uh, story and reputation on the line to go try and make an impact on others. It's just amazing. So thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. And I, when we were out in Washington, D.C., and I was explaining to people Jolene's Law, and I kind of was like, well, so we, and we have this Jolene's Law, and then we do this, and people go, well, that's your name. Yeah. That way, is that you? And I am, and I'll get a little bit. It catches me um, because it is me. It's my story. But it's thousands of stories. There are 4,000 kids in this state every year that share my story. They're not named Jolene. Yep. But yeah. they share that story. Right. And how do we make sure there's not even one? You know, what do we do? And it will be, um, you know, I think at the end of my days... One of the greatest things I can say I did, and while I'd give anything to not have a law, anything, because we didn't need one, um, I will be forever proud of of what that means to, for this state. And there was no, um, at the end of the day, the work that's being done is not Republican or Democrat. Right. It is, it's for the good of the states, for the good of our children. I feel like I want to end the episode there, but I'm not going to <laughs> because uh, because I think that is that is such a great legacy already, and 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 the work goes on. It does, yeah. I do want to t- I do want to ask you a couple other things. Yeah. So, um, tell me about what a Coca Cola scholar is. We so, both have, by the way, we uh, do have Coke beverages, diet cokes in front of us. Yes, um, and thank you to uh, our wonderful- not sponsored, no, by not diet sponsored, coke, by the way. no, or our wonderful friends at Chesterman Bottle. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the Coca Cola Scholar, way back in the day, um, what I would consider the golden age of rap music, Biggie and Tupac. Okay, and uh, can you can you go? Do you want to freestyle oh, a bit? No, come on. <laughs> No, it's it's. I told you I can't sing. <laughs> well, um, do you think that's the same thing? I mean, is it singing? It is, is modern, rapping singing. They are the modern day poetry. But poetry, they are troubadours. Right, but I, I think anyway, you, you could hang. Oh no, I can't. Okay. Well, I mean, if if you see, <laughs> if you see a, a trying to dare you, Sorry. I know you are. It's I, my husband's like over here, and you, I think he knows. There <laughs> there are some bad videos of me like. 
So is it like Tribe Called Quest? Like what? What? What are my like Biggie, Tupac? Um, are definitely like traditional DMX, like. DMX. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Rough Riders. Yeah. yeah. And my husband was a Roosevelt grad, so he's obviously like a huge Rough Riders <laughs> regulators. Yes. So, um, so anyway, Co- I am, I'm a Coca Cola scholar back in the day, <laughs> the golden age of rap music. And um, so I was selected uh, as a Coca Cola scholar back back way back when and um during that experience coca-cola looked at what i had done and what my potential was to positively impact the world and said we are going to invest in you twenty thousand dollars to go to college that changed the course of my life 20 grand back in 1997 pretty big it was huge yeah and i didn't i didn't know where i was going to go um i was a single income teacher salary it wasn't uh, contingent on where you went. Nope. Nice. I could go anywhere. And that's how I ended up at Northwestern. Yeah. And that's how I ended up back here. And so many times, even during like the worst moments of my life, um, during the darkest days, yeah, it sounds cheesy, um, but I would have, you know, the worst days or the worst times and you pick up this Diet Coke and I'm like, holy bleep. Those people didn't really know me, but they thought I was worth $20,000. Right. Gave me a chance. Gave me a chance to change the world. And, you know, without Coca-Cola, there's not Jolene's Law. Oh, wow. I truly believe that. So they invested in me, and I am so incredibly blessed to continue to work um, with the Coca-Cola Scholars Foundation. And so I get to go back and meet the new scholars. We have 6,000 scholars that are changing the world. They are everywhere from um, the halls of Congress, Representative Lee Stefanik, who was uh, up until not too long ago the youngest woman elected to Congress, along with uh, Senator Ben Sass, all the way to, um, you know, Kids who are going back to their communities in, um, you know, in New Mexico, into their tribal um, communities on the reservation and learning um, how they can give back medical care because they've gone out, they've uh, received their RNs degree, Coca-Cola supported that, and now they're going back home. And so it's incredible. I I, I love it. Um, And I will... Always be. I'm a Coke Zero girl first, then Diet Coke. But yeah, and well, and Monster Energy, which you know, knock on wood, is also a Coca-Cola product. Well, um, the other thing that we need to talk about is you went through this this election. I did. And, yeah. Uh, what what a journey that was. So I think if I have the facts right, there were like seven candidates running for office in Sioux Falls. Initially, at one point, there were eight. Eight. Okay. So running for Sioux Falls mayor, which is different. So like in in Yankton, a town like like I live in, we have a city commission, mm-hmm. and the mayor is is. I wouldn't say weak, but weaker, right? Yeah, so, it's not like Sioux Falls. Sioux it's Falls elected, is a strong man. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're elected by the commission, and and in there, um, it's you are the executive, and it's a six figure job, I believe, mm-hmm. and and so big deal. And anyway, you ran against some pretty heavily financed yeah. opponents. Um, tell me about the journey, why you wanted to run, and um, how you beat expectations. So um, we. I knew I wanted to give back, and I I had seen through um, the Jolene's Law work, through you know removing the statute of limitations. I saw what people who cared could do. I saw the power of policy to impact 
thousands of people, thousands upon thousands. And so when I was really at this point of how do I serve? What do I give back? What does that look like? Um, I also had a five week old baby in my arms and I was a first time mom. Yep. And they'll tell you over and over and over <laughs> again how you see the world changes. And it does. Yeah, it doesn't. You don't know it till you see it. No. And it was sitting right there in my arms. And I knew I'd wanted to serve. And we and, and how do I, I give back? And we'd had those conversations within our family. And I have the most amazing cheerleader in my husband. And he's like, you want to do this? Run for mayor. Do it. Um, and in my mind, it's like, right but it's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to this, right? People are going to make fun of me. I might lose. I might lose. Hey, I might lose. People might make fun of me. You know, like <laughs> our baby's going to cry every, every hour. Yeah, like how do I? How do I? How do I become a mom and a run for office? And then what we'll about the companies? We'll do it in eight years. We'll do it when it's more convenient. Well, in that, you know, and that does. And I think for female candidates, and people told me, why would you do it now? You know, you should wait and be a mom, and then just wait. And I'm like, well, wait, when? Well, when she's older, when? In eight years when she's in school mm -hmm. and she's got school stuff? Well, no, because you need to be there for that. Well, wait, when? Another eight years when she's in high school and she's got high school stuff? You know? Oh, or another eight years. So I should wait 24 years to give back? <laughs> no. Like, there is no wrong time to yeah, want that's to a, do that. That's a common theme with, with women in anything, right, is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how many entrepreneurial conferences have I been to where the one of the first questions you ask a woman is, how are you managing it all? How do you do it all? And, and while it is a, a feat, it's it's demeaning to suggest that they can't. Right. You know? And it's, you know, and I saw this, you know, throughout the campaign, well, she's a mom. They're dads. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like, and it's, and I think it is, um, it isn't fair to men and the role men, men can and do play in families. Like the role Nate's playing. The role Nate's playing to, to be like, oh, well, only the mom can do it. Um, and so we, you know, we knew it was a family decision. And um, so she was five weeks old when I really started thinking about it. And I just had this moment at like 3 a.m., one day when she's three months old and I'm rocking her and um, I just like life sped ahead in this moment I looked at her and I saw her as a teenager and hands on the hips and defiant and which now that she's a toddler has <laughs> come to be a little more true. And her name? Liberty. Nice. Yeah. Liberty, um, which is a lot of meanings behind it. But yeah. And, you know, she's sitting there and I'm telling her to do something and pff, I don't I don't know what it is. Right. And I'm telling her to do something and she's like, I'm not going to do it. Well, no, you need to try, right? You know, the mom voice of you need to try, you should do it. And no, I'm not going to, not going to. And I might lose, I might this, I might fail. And then just like this cutting, well, you didn't try. You were so scared of losing, you just didn't even try. And like, whoa, what I don't do is just as impactful in my child's life as what I do. Okay, I got to do it. And so I wrote on a subway napkin because I was going back to bed after feeding her. I wrote on a subway napkin, um, let's go. And I left it for Nate when he went to feed her the next go around, <laughs> which he's going to shake his head and go, this is not a true story. It is a true story. He ironically broke up with me on a subway napkin many years earlier than that. <laughs> but we ran for mayor. And so we came into this field. We were the last ones to announce. Um, we were... 
blissfully ignorant of what it meant to run for office. Like we just kind of went, boom, let's do it. I don't know what it means. With more hindsight, I realized how much we didn't know. Yeah. But it, I think it was this beautiful expression of we don't know. We'll figure it out. And this is what it means to serve and love the place you live. Well, and you, I'm sure that you knew you had you had some confidence in your messaging, right? I mean, for instance, you got a very pretty comf- good advertising agency. Yeah, right. <laughs> you, you knew how to get the word out and uh, you, you were already very social on social media. You're confident in front of a microphone in front of crowds. So so that uh, probably was not that big of a hurdle. But uh, when you think about like what kind of money were some of your top candidates? What did they have um, into the race? You know, when you were going uh, into the runoff, um, I believe, or prior to the runoff, there were candidates that were um, were spending, raising um, well in excess of two hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollars. You know, close to, if not over, three hundred thousand. Right. Um, that's a lot of money. That's a lot. That is a lot for a, for a mayoral job. That mm-hmm. you know, for many of these other towns, are like what? Yeah, right. Wait, we. I think we pay you in like. <laughs> yeah. You know, I. You know, I don't know what Yankton pays. Uh, oh, other than Im- immense pride, I think they pay like two th- to three hundred dollars a month, and I think the mayor gets. Uh, it gets a little bump over that, like, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's it's basically a volunteer job. But it it the financial part of it. I mean, we were. We were the underdogs of when we announced. We were the underdogs in that, um, you know, I wasn't familiar with the political machine. Yeah. Um, we didn't have a clue what we were doing or what it meant other than we knew what we wanted to do in the end, which was to give back and to serve and to make Sioux Falls better. And you I, made it was, into the top two. Made it to the top two, which in um, in Sioux Falls then triggers a runoff because yeah. you have to have 50%. Um, and then it was three weeks between then and the, the final election. And it was, it was crazy. It was exhilarating. Like you look back on it and at times I'm like, how did we do that? Yeah. Like, um, Would you do it again? Um, you know, no. I, I, I guess what I'm asking is not will would you I run do that again? experience yeah. again? Um, yeah, yeah. I think um, in in the immediate aftermath, and and I say aftermath because um, campaigns are hard. Yeah, and you put heart and soul into it, and you put your whole family into it, and um, you know, um, it's, it's also tough. like people almost stop viewing you as a three-dimensional person you're a they, character yeah right so mm-hmm. i mean i can i can find a trait of yours that i don't like and that's that's who you become yeah. you know and that's that's i'm sure it's tough gross. yeah and um and i think it was a, a sad microcosm at moments and, and i want to be very clear about yeah. this at moments of um where we are as a nation that we distill someone down into um, a single letter or a single word mm-hmm. or a single caricature. And um, and then we throw all of the sticks and stones and arrows at them online. Yeah. Without any regard to the fact that that is a person. And regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, that is a person willing to put themselves out there. And let's have a civil dialogue about differences but there's no reason um there's no reason to to rip out the decency of the conversation and and so again i say that was a tiny a tiny sliver you know in your mind and in your heart it amplifies at times um but the people i met 
Um, you know, I, I knocked on like 8,000 doors in Sioux Falls, a lot of doors. Yeah. And, and keep in mind last year, winter didn't really end till the last week of April. (laughs) (laughs) So there was some cold door knocking. People welcomed me into their home. Like literally, oh, hi. And in there were some that were like, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to vote for you, but I'd like to talk to you about it. I'll talk to you. That's. Yeah, that's what we need. And and I loved meeting kids, especially like when we were doing door knocking. And um, there is a little girl named Althea who was she was in middle school and she lived up on North Euclid. And, and so I was out and about and, and she was like, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing this. And I said, what's your name? And I'm Althea. And, da, 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 da. And, and I said, would you ever run for office? And she's like, no, because, you know, like, I'm just not that smart. And like, like there's some other kids that I think would do better. And I said, well, do you want to do it? Well, yeah, I think it'd be fun. And then do it. And I hope, like, I don't know Althea's last name, but I hope, um, you know, I hope maybe that was this little seed. Yeah. A nugget that sticks with her. Yeah. And, and I, I've reflected back on why I wanted to serve and what that looked like. And, um, there was a woman named Cheryl Lindau from Wayne, Nebraska, And I was not very old and Cheryl became the mayor of Wayne and Cheryl was a mom and she had a business on main street and she was the mayor. And I think, um, and I don't know where she is today. I don't know what she's doing today. Um, but Cheryl Lindau inspired a little kid to want to be a mayor. Hey, so, so no doubt you did the same thing, right? I mean, you didn't win. But I bet you've inspired a few others to take that risk in the future, too. I hope so. And and I am so proud of the race we ran. Yeah. I'm proud of, um, you know, we didn't do it with a lot of money, but um, we brought some, you know, we brought some grit. We brought the hard work. We brought um, my mother-in-law putting in and out yard signs <laughs> in the middle of the night with my husband. I, Nate had a head wound at one point because he's a city boy and they, you have the, um, the pole. Yeah. Right. Right. That you, well, for the big signs. Cold, cold time of year. A cold time yeah. of year. And so it's like, I don't know, two, three, some, you know, ungodly hour and signs could go up, I believe in February or so. And so he's out like driving the fence posts in and next morning <laughs> I wake up, I look over and, and he gets up. So he had like flung the post driver up too high. And so it was like, and right into his right head. Into his head. <laughs> but he didn't realize he had done it until like, I think he, got, he was like, I got a headache. And so then, yeah, so he's, and he has no hair, um, you know, brilliant men are bald, right? And uh, so he's got this head wound. Can't hide it. No, huh? So he's stocking usually hat. stocking cap, baseball <laughs> cap. He wore a lot of uh, Let's Go Joe. Yeah. His Let's Go Joe hat. I think that might have taken out one because I think it, the hats were white and it was some blood involved. But. <laughs> well, I've learned a lot today. I learned about your businesses. I learned about giving back, about courage, Um and it's just been a really fun conversation, and I, I just can't wait to see what you do next. But I do want to say it is 
11.30 in the morning, and Jodine's is going to start getting a line at yes. their buffet. So you guys are going to want to get out there we're, soon. We're getting out to the buffet, and I think uh, today I'm going to case out the Jello salad because you know <laughs> there's some mean Jello salad waiting there. The thing about Jodine's, again, too, is you can go there and you know have a plate that's about nine inches diameter and somehow find like chicken, ribs, mm-hmm. roast beef, uh, tilapia, and salad and, and a dessert on yeah on one plate and you know you can come back and get more plates but that would just look yeah, like but, ostentatious right so. like you, <laughs> you gotta have a little humility in yeah, this world right. <laughs> well thanks again for coming in oh thank you and thanks for um always a good reason to see beautiful yankton well that was a fun conversation for me if you like the conversations and interviews we're having here, please subscribe on whatever podcast platform you like to, or you can catch us directly at anchor.fm slash the lanyard. We'll be back next week with another interview.